If you would, go ahead and flip with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23. You probably know this one by heart if you grew up in the church. We're spending the summer in the Psalms, and I'm so excited about where we've been and and where we're going. And here at Story Church, we believe that the word is from God and about God. And because of that, we like to stand in honor of the Lord speaking to us. So would you stand and read with me? Psalm chapter 23 says this, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, I'm excited. Our our friend Mike uh, will be here from uh, Torrance, California. He's here this morning. He will not be here. I said he will be here. He's actually already here. Um... (laughs) Believe it or not, and he's sneaking up on me, and I'm a little bit afraid of that. Uh, Mike and his wife, Skye, and his two kiddos uh, down in Story Kids are here with us this Sunday. Mike's been here before. Uh, I'm so excited for him to bring the word for us, and I just realized another bald and bearded preacher at Story Church. So, hey, welcome Mike to preach. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Good morning, Story Church. Um, as we get started, I want to say a few things. One, I just want to say to Stephen, I think you're good looking. And Travis, I want to say I think you're smart. Just, I just want to want you guys to feel left out. Um, so I, I'm grateful. I, I love your staff. As we were driving in this morning, we were talking a little bit about the connections. And so I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I've been with you before. I think this is my fourth time being with you guys. I was here for your core team meeting, and then I've preached a few times. Uh, one was via the pandemic, via video, but like just a grace to be with you. But the reason I know Travis and Katie is when I worked on the staff at the village and I was getting ready to move into my pastoral residency, Travis was uh, the person that we hired to replace me. And so I often like to tell people, Travis is the 2.0 version of me. Uh, he was the, he was the upgrade that everybody got when I left. Uh, and then Stephen was, was one of our interns. Uh, and I watched him come in and just begin to flourish, not just as a, as a person on staff, but as a man, as a husband. Uh, and so it's fun because we just had a little boy. He'll be, he'll be one next week. And then Stephen and Allison had Hallie just a few months afterwards. And so they're like, I think they're like a month apart. And so it's like super cool. Super cool. So like, it just, it just, it just grace. So I love it. I love it. And I'm grateful. Um, I, Travis mentioned that my wife, Sky and my boys, uh, Apollo and Julius are here. And so just grateful. I don't always get to do ministry with them in the same vicinity as me. And so just grateful that they are a part of this weekend. Uh, we've already read Psalm 23, but let me confess something to you before we start. Uh, I have a little bit of tension around Psalm 23. Uh, how many of you are, there's two, let me, let me, I'm not even asking a question because it's church and you're not going to, you're not going to respond anyways. And so, um, <laughs> There are two types of people in the world. There are American Idol people, and there are the voice people. And I'm not even saying one's better than the other. However, the voice people are my people. And what I've realized when you watch those shows is there's always a moment, especially with the voice, because they have celebrity musician judges, that somebody comes out and they make the wrong decision of singing the song that this judge is famous for. So like you don't go on the voice of Adele's a host and start singing somebody like you because you can't win. 
Because if you sing it exactly like Adele sang it, everybody's gonna be like, well, you don't have any talent, you're just a copycat. But if you sing it radically different, they'll be like, what song are you singing? Why'd you mess up Adele's song? So here's the tension I feel with Psalm 23. Everybody knows it. And if I just preach to you what you already know, I'm singing Adele's song like Adele, I'm just a copycat. But if I sing it radically different, that would probably make me a heretic and you guys should get up and walk out. So what I'm asking the Lord to do is to help us hear something that's immensely familiar with brand new ears. I don't have anything new to tell you from Psalm 23 as much as I hope that we look at it and see it and the way that we look at it and see it, it does something in our hearts that it's not just in our minds, but it travels to our hearts that it doesn't just guide our thinking, but what you've been doing with this series is asking the Lord to use the Psalms to guide your thinking and your feeling. And so as we jump into the 23rd Psalm, here's the main idea. Um, Understanding the Lord's desire to guide us and dwell with us is foundational to our pursuit of him. And so in verses one through four, we're just gonna see him as a faithful shepherd. And then in verses five and six, we're just gonna see him as a gracious host. Um, Do me the liberty of let's let's pray together one more time uh, and then I'll jump in. And so Father, thank you. Thank you for friends. Thank you um, for a moment like this where um, even getting to experience the gospel goodbye of Rick moving on and the impact that he's left, that only happens when, when you deeply root in some place. That only happens when there are, is life-on-life relationships and not just passing in and passing, out, passing by on a Sunday, but really doing life and, and, and being near one another. And so Lord, could we do that not just uh, in our coming and our going, but also even as we slow down and get into your word, would there be life on life that we could see you and and be transformed by you over the next few moments? Lord, it's in your matchless name I pray, amen. 23rd Psalm, uh, we just read it together, but I wanna read it again. It would say that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I'm not going to do this with the entire text, otherwise it's going to be a seven-hour sermon, but I just want to stop after those first couple of words. The Lord. Uh, If you're reading most English translations, the way that you're seeing that is it's L-O-R-D capitalized, and that means something. Somebody didn't just get their bio, they didn't just get their typewriter or their computer stuck on cap, typewriter, like it's 1987. Uh, They didn't get their computer stuck on caps lock. But it's actually the way that in English they could translate the covenant name of God to let you know that this isn't just a designation of a title, but this is a personal name. And so David starts out this psalm by saying, God, the covenant-keeping God, keeps all of his promises. He is my shepherd. Like, it's, it's this kind of intimate statement of, of, I know him in a way that it's not just, uh, he's this idea, but he's personal to me. In fact, I'll go a step farther. Um, oftentimes, when you see the Lord's name displayed this way in the scriptures, he's revealing who he is, his presence, his power in a way that you can't just know about because you heard about him somewhere else. In fact, when you read the scriptures, the designation of his name, uh, Moses, when he's standing before a burning bush in the book of Exodus, that the Lord would begin to reveal who he is. And Moses is like, mm, I don't know how much you know about me. But the reason that I'm out here in the wilderness is because I killed a dude 
and the people rejected me because I killed a dude. And so I'm gonna need a resume, a business card, a picture on a website to help validate that you sent me. And the Lord's response is, I am who I am. As if to say, I am faithful to do what I say I'm going to do. I'm faithful to be what I say I'm going to be. And so this name, Yahweh, that's represented by these letters, is the Lord saying, this is how you know me personally and into me. My presence and my power is with you. And what's profound to me is that as you read the scriptures, something like 6,800 times it shows up. But it's interesting the ways that it shows up. So for instance, in the book of Joshua, when they're getting ready to go into the promised land, the Israelites have never been there before and they bump into a woman named Rahab. And Rahab says, hey, we've heard about the name of Yahweh and we know what he can do. I want you to deliver my family because I understand his power. Or these people called the Gibeonites, they actually mask themselves to look like they're these beat up vagrants that want to be part of Israel. And they go to Joshua and say, hey, can we be part of you guys? Because we've heard the name of Yahweh and we want to be delivered. And so just knowing the name of Yahweh means something. But maybe the best illustration is not to the positive, but to the negative. Genesis chapter three, if you read Genesis chapter one and two, Moses is writing, looking back at the creation of the world. And as he writes over and over again, you will see Yahweh God or L-O-R-D capitalized God over and over and over again. As he tells the story, looking back, he designates the name and the power of God that was revealed to him. But Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one would say this. Moses is speaking here, writing here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God, Yahweh God, had made. He said to the woman, and now this is the serpent's voice, did God actually say? Notice that there is no designation of his name. Notice there's no, no, no intimacy, no reverence, and it's not that the serpent didn't know, but it's that the serpent didn't care or didn't respect you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God, apparently Eve didn't know either, said, you shall not eat of the, tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, your, of, of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what happens next is that uh, Eve takes the fruit and she eats. But here's what I want you to see. That somehow, because she didn't know his name, she didn't understand his power, she didn't trust his promises, she didn't trust his person, and instead of trusting him in what he said, isn't that the problem of sin all the time? Isn't it always this question, can you trust God said? Do you know him well enough to take what he said as being good on his credit? And so David starts by saying, I need you to know that this God whom I know intimately is my shepherd. Now, in our culture, I think we have a positive affect towards shepherds. We like that cute little character, Lamb Chop, and so anybody who takes care of Lamb Chop, like, you're good with me. But in ancient cultures, to be a shepherd, while well, there's there some notable shepherds, uh, Abel was a shepherd, Abram was a shepherd, Isaac was a shepherd, David was a shepherd. There are lots of positive shepherds. Even Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. But in that culture, being a shepherd was a low-level job. In fact, in that culture, to be a shepherd, you, your testimony was not admissible in court if you saw a crime. Think about a job that you could do in this day and age that you record a crime on your phone and say, hey, I have evidence right here that that person killed or stole or did whatever. And they would be like, nah, you're a used car salesman. We can't take your testimony. 
Literally, that's the, what a shepherd is. And so, and not only is a shepherd that, but most of the time shepherds were actually hired and there was a manager that owned the crop and they just managed the crop. And so can you imagine this low level job that David would say, the Lord, Yahweh God, creator of the heavens and the earth would condescend himself down to the job of shepherd to be near me who's a dumb sheep. One of the jobs of a shepherd is when they would go out into pasture to find food to eat, that the, outside the sheep pen there was no door. And so the shepherd would lay down at the door of the sheep pen as if to say, if you're going to enter into danger, you're going to have to jump over my body. That David would say that the God of the universe would lay himself down that way to protect, ourselves, protect us from ourselves, that this is not just a cute, hey, remember this and put it on a coffee cup. He's making a statement about the committedness of God as a faithful shepherd to us. And then he would go on to say, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Let me ask a question. Has anybody in the room ever been to Israel? This is not what the postcards from Israel typically look like. It's arid and dry. The waters that are there are places like the Dead Sea. If you get in the Dead Sea and you have a cut on your body, you will know because it will be on fire because of the amount of salt that's in the Dead Sea. And so this picture of still, lush, beautiful waters and green pastures, this doesn't seem like Israel. It seems like Eden. And uh, Tim Mackey, the Bible project, he would talk about that uh, the, the, the kingdom of God, the Garden of Eden was this place of the overlap of the presence of God and where humanity was. And what David sounds like he's describing is not, hey, the Lord lets me lay down in nice fields, but he gives me his presence in a way that I can receive it nowhere else. That he leads me to a place that feels like Eden that he gives me comfort and rest in his presence in a way that no one else can. And he would say this, and in that place, he restores my soul, that he leads me in paths of righteousness. This is not a statement of morality. It's that he leads me in the right path. He knows where he's going and he's never misstepped, that this is how he leads me. And part of me is like, hmm, yeah. But the rest of me is like, and it feels like verse four is a problem. Because if he never leads me on the wrong path, and then verse four says, but even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, how am I ending up in the valley of the shadow of death of what he's supposed to give me is this, this Eden-like reality. Because what's true is that we don't live in Eden. What's true is that we don't live in green, lush fields and nice still waters where we live are dark and scary places. If you were a reader in this day and age, um, this idea of the valley of the shadow of death, it wasn't just this emotive idea of going through difficult things, but shepherds would literally lead people through places called wadis. And wadis were these uh, valleys that were in between two large rock faces and covered in darkness, and they would lead you to places of fulfillment and feeding, but you had to walk through the dangerous darkness where predatory animals and predatory people might attack you. And so to walk this path through dark places, it was a very real reality that shepherds might do, but it means you got to trust the shepherd in places where you don't want to go. Let, let me, let's have a real conversation because how are you being a faithful shepherd to me? That's the, that's the point of verses one through four, right? How are you being a faithful shepherd if you're supposed to lead me to green pastures and still waters and I end up in places that feel dark and dangerous? 
How do you, Lord, if you're, because this is the way we think about God, if you've been good to me and I've been good to you, if I've worked my fingers to the bone, that I shouldn't end up in the difficult places that, I'm, that I've ended up in. That I shouldn't end up worried about my job or worried about the, the safety of my kids or worried about the craziness of the world around me. That I shouldn't be worried about gas being $17 a gallon. Like, are you being a faithful shepherd or not? And I would dare say that if he never misses his path, then what gets us in the places that are dark and difficult is either one, we have decided by our own rebellion that we're going to places that we should not go, or two, he's leading us through dark and difficult places because it's actually good for us. And what I love that ends verse four is regardless of whether you got there on your own because of your sinful rebellion or you got there because the Lord's leading you there, what you can know is that he's there with you. And then it would go farther and say that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now we get the shepherd's staff. We get the picture we've all seen when you walk into the Christian bookstore, the picture of the, the shepherd with the lamb on his shoulders and he's got the little staff with the hook in it. And that was used for correction and to pull the sheep back from going too far. But the rod was also used for when you got into close hand-to-hand -hand combat and you had to defend yourself against something that was evil, you used it up close and personal in the fight. And I just love that both are true of the Lord. Because the imbalance is, and you've, you've, you've watched this, right? You've seen the kid, don't look at nobody, but you've seen the kid that they can never do wrong. And so mama is always in close-to-close -close hand combat, fighting the world for them, trying to make things okay when, when her kid's crazy. <laughs> or the flip side, there's all correction, but there's no defense. And so you're always putting on me and always telling me to be better and do better. And maybe that's how you grew up. Well, if you had done better, you wouldn't have got yourself in this situation. And what I love is that the faithful shepherd enters in with the correction of where I might be off, but the defense of where the world might try to destroy me. And this faithful shepherd comes near and says, I'm getting the mess with you, even in the darkness of what you're dealing with. I'm, I'm right by your side. The Lord is a faithful shepherd. But then in verses five and six, it feels like the, the tone changes a little bit. And it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, one of the interesting things about Psalm 23 is as famous as it is, nobody knows why it was written. In fact, when you read a lot of Psalms in the title, it'll say a Psalm of David as he was running from so-and-so. Or it'll at least say it is a, it's a, a masculine of the sons of Korah and it was for this festival. But all we get is that it's a Psalm of David. And people who are much smarter than me have argued and debated, well, this is David writing when he was in the palace thinking about the goodness of the Lord towards him. And other people have gone the exact opposite, that this is David in the midst of his difficult days writing and saying, as hard as this situation is, that I look to the presence of the Lord, and though it doesn't feel near me, I'm, I'm reminding myself that he's close to me. I don't have the answer for you this morning. So if you're like, which one is it? I have no idea. But what I do know is that David isn't speaking about ideas that are foreign to his experience. And so having a table prepared for him in the place of his enemies is really important to David's story. Maybe you don't know David's story. 
Uh, David was the eighth son of Jesse. And the reason that he, we even get to know David is that Saul was currently the king and he had been unfaithful in, in destroying the uh, Amalekites. And instead he decided that I'm gonna keep some things back for myself. And so when Samuel, the prophet, saw that, he said, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you and I'm going to go find a new king. And so he goes to Jesse's house and he says, hey, Jesse, will you bring all of your sons because one of them's named to be king? And Jesse brings his sons and he begins to go through the list of sons. And he's like, no, it's not this one. It's not this one. It's not this one. And he's like, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And he's like, oh yeah, David, he's out in the field. I should probably go get him. To which the Bible doesn't say this, but I just got to feel like Samuel was like, bro, you have one job. You got eight kids, bring all eight of the kids. So he gets David and David is anointed to be king. And then what happens next is that David gets uh, this opportunity to begin to play his harp for Saul as Saul's soul is agitated and demon depressed because of him losing the presence of God in his life. And then what happens is that uh, the famous story of David and Goliath happens and what's going on is that they are running to their battle lines and be like, nah, we don't wanna fight today. And they're going back and hiding. Goliath's like, I'll settle this right now. You send your best dude. Goliath's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And here's what I know. Back when I played basketball, if they run out a seven-foot dude, you don't send a five-foot-three kid to defend them. You send your seven-foot dude. Israel's seven-foot dude is Saul. And Saul's like, nah. <laughs> so David shows up and he's like, hey, who's gonna fight? He's talking trash about the Lord. So you, you, that's not what the ESV says. That's the mic version. <laughs> and so they say, well, this, this man's a killing machine. He's been doing this all his life. You're a kid. He's like, no, I got this. And then David steps up and kills Goliath. Now, I'll just tell you, um, I'm, I'm growing more mature in ministry. When I started in ministry, I was leading fourth grade boys in a Sunday school class. We were telling this story. And one of the kids was like, yeah, he hit him with a rock and then he died. And I was like, no, nah, bro, he cut off his head. I got a lot of conversations with moms from that. <laughs> fourth grade boys don't need to know that. Uh, so then here's what happens. David kills Goliath and people jump up and say, Saul's killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. You know you've done something real legit when people make up a song about you on the spot. <laughs> and it causes the insecurity of Saul to rage. So the next time that David goes before him to play his harp, Saul grabs his spear and chunks it at David. So you can't fight Goliath, but you got spears in your bedroom throwing them at people. What's wrong with you, Saul? To the degree that David's like, I've got to run. I can't stay in the kingdom. And Jonathan says, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go to my father and we're going to have a festival. And when we have that festival, I'm going to ask him to make a place for you at the table. And if, you, if I can't make a place for you at the table, I'm going to send out a servant to shoot an arrow beyond the position where you're hiding so you know you need to run far from here. Ultimately, what happens is that when the festival happens, Jonathan tries to make a place for David and Jonathan is not capable of doing it. So why did I tell you all that? Because the truth of David's story is that David is an innocent man before a wicked king and the son of the king is doing the best that he can to try and make a place at the table for him and the son of the king is not able to make a place for him. But when David says that you prepare a place for me in the presence of my enemies, like if you and I thought about our story, we are not David. We are not the innocent person faithfully serving God. We're actually the enemy of the state that sits before a righteous king that should exterminate us. And yet the son of the king has stepped in and said, I'm going to make a place for you at a play table that you don't belong. And so I wish I had some in the room, people who knew how much they didn't deserve to be at the table that they're actually at. 
Jesus has made a place for us to sit at a table that we don't deserve to be at. And so to say to the Lord, you have made a place for me at a table that I don't deserve to be at, is to say you're this gracious host that's making space for somebody that should be pushed far away. And then he makes this statement, you anoint my head with oil. Anointing the head with oil is often a sign of leadership being conferred, but it's also a sign of affection. Uh, Luke chapter seven would would help explain this. Uh, There's gonna be a lot of text here. Just stay with me, I promise. It's gonna be important. One of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, uh, uh, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Let me just, this isn't even my message. This is just for you. If you're ever in the room with Jesus and you're thinking thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking and Jesus says, I have something to say to you, the proper response is not, say it, Jesus. Let me know what you got. Don't. Just start repenting of stuff. Whatever you can think of, just start repenting. Simon obviously didn't know that. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What I don't want you to miss is when Jesus was saying, hey, you didn't show me proper affection. He's like, man, you didn't clean my feet. That was a custom of the day. That that was the job of the lowest servant was to wash the person's feet because walking through the dirty, dusty, um, animal excrement streets of that day and age, you needed to wash your feet before you sat down at the table. But he said, like, you didn't greet me properly with a kiss as if I was uh, somebody that was an honored guest in your home. And then he says that you didn't anoint my head with oil that you didn't love me enough or respect me enough or or see the value of me being here enough that you would honor me in that way. And this woman has spent this, this, uh, this ointment on my feet. And then for David to say that the Lord, who is my shepherd, has made a place for me and has anointed my head, has caused my cup to overflow. Wait a minute, you're the guest of honor and you're treating me like I'm the one that people showed up for. I should be doing this for you, but you love me so much that you're doing this for me. This is backwards. And then he would go on to say, uh, 
Not just that you're making a place for me, but surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, let's, let's work this out. Follow is a weak translation. What we think about in following in our culture is either you're a stalker that doesn't have the permission to follow that person and none of us want that, or the way that we do on social media where we just kind of pop in every now and then when it's convenient for us. Goodness and mercy is not chasing after you in a way that you don't want, nor is it just kind of popping in every, every now and then. A better translation is that goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. Think about the goodness of that. Because if it was just this momentary, you can sit at the table for now, but after you leave, you're on your own. I've been to a lot of people's houses and had a lot of good meals. But my favorite ones were people like, now before you leave, here's all the extras of the stuff that I made so you can eat for the next two weeks. Those are my people. Because they want that goodness of that meal to extend past that moment. And so for the Lord to be that type of gracious host who says, hey, when you, when you pass this moment, my goodness and mercy is going to be chasing after you wherever else you go. Then I will dwell in the house of the Lord. In, in secular dating culture, there's this idea of giving somebody a drawer. It means there's a place that you belong here, that you're not just passing by, but you get to dwell. And if the Lord would say, that I'm not just making this temporary place and then sending you home, but my goodness follows you wherever you go, and I'm actually making a place for you to stay, to dwell, to be here with me, man, the Lord's an immensely gracious host. So, great, we understand Psalm 23. And how does understanding that fulfill the idea of the main idea? That understanding the Lord's desire to guide us and dwell with us is foundational to our pursuit of him. I think there's a couple of things and then I'm gonna get out of your way. Here's the first one. That if the Lord is a faithful shepherd who does not, who does not step down the wrong path, and wherever you are and wherever you go, that the power and the presence of the Lord is available to you. Like, I, I want you to know that because David starts with this idea that the Lord being my shepherd, that, that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping faithful God, that he guides me and he cares for me and he corrects me and he walks with me. Like, if we know that, think about how that changes not just the way that we understand situations, but the way that we emotively enter into those situations. When I was uh, in Dallas, before Travis and I worked on staff together, I worked at another church called North Place. And I had the opportunity to lead the, the young adult ministry. So the, uh, from basically 18 to 35, college young professionals. And while I was doing that, there was a young man who was part of our church who, um, he was immensely gifted, had a gathering gift, had a teaching gift, but he also battled really dark sin, particularly cycles of addiction. And what was odd was when he seemed like he was operating most deeply in his gifts was often when he was most deeply buried in his sin. And what would happen is that he was trying to assuage the guilt of what he was doing outside of the church by being this awesome person and servant inside of the church. And so when we saw him serving and acting in his gift the most was when we became the most worried. There was a season where it felt like he was striking gold and we were actually really nervous because it meant that somewhere, somehow, sin was happening in his life that he was covering up. We shortly found out thereafter that 
he had been using his gathering gift to draw some of our young adults, particularly young adult women, into events, parties that were unsafe for them, and was ultimately accused of assaulting a girl that was part of our young adult ministry. So our lead pastor at the time came to me and he said, he could no longer attend here. He could no longer attend, be, be a part of our young adult service. And I just want to say, like, looking back on that, like, how proud I am to have worked for somebody who's like, hey, I'm not waiting for all the, the verdict and evidence to figure this out. Like, I'm going to step in and defend these young ladies. Like, we're going to protect from them from somebody who is maybe potentially dangerous and who's proved himself to be dangerous in other situations. Like, that's great leadership. And then he said to me, and so I need you to meet with him and tell him that he can no longer attend our church. I'm like, you know, you might need to send somebody else. And he was like, it's part of your ministry. You have the closest relationship to him. It makes the most sense for you to do this. And I'm like, I agree with everything that you're saying, principally. But I just don't understand why it's me. And then he said to me, do you not know that you walk with the incarnational presence of Jesus? That there's not a situation that you walk into that Jesus doesn't walk into first? And like, what do you do to argue with that, right? Like, you're just like, all right, all right, I guess I'm going. And so I can remember driving to Rockwall, Texas into this little diner. And in my mind, it was like this scene out of The Godfather. Like, I wanted to have somebody in the, like, the booth next to us just in case some stuff went down. But as I'm driving there, I'm saying in my heart, you walk with the incarnational presence of Jesus. There's not a situation that you walk into that Jesus hasn't walked into first. And I like, I'm like pumping myself up. Like I'm in the parking lot. Like you walk with the incarnational presence of Jesus. Like you don't walk into any situation that Jesus hadn't walked into first. I'm pushing through the doors of the rest. I walk with the incarnational presence of Jesus. Right? Like I don't think I said that out loud because I think they would have probably kicked me out of the restaurant. And what I want to tell you is that I sat down and started having this conversation and Angel sat next to us. He began to weep under the conviction of his sin and said, you guys are right. What do I need to do to make this right? It was actually the opposite. He began to rage more. He began to say, who are you to tell me without any evidence that I actually did this, that I can't be a part of your church? I thought the church was supposed to love sinners. I thought Jesus sat at tables with sinners and you're saying that I don't have a space here. And all that just kept residing in me is like, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the presence of Jesus. And the presence of Jesus has exposed your sin and you're not willing to submit to him. You're actually raging in your flesh and Jesus is is present in this moment. You ain't mad at me. You've got an issue with him because I walk with his presence. I just want you to know, however fearful the situation that you might enter into, that you walk in the presence of the faithful shepherd who is going as far as saying that I will lay down my life to make sure that you don't enter into harm. But if you do, I'm running in there with you. We have a faithful, faithful shepherd. Here's the second thing. We have a gracious host who makes space for people who don't deserve to be at his table. You have a responsibility to both receive and reflect Jesus. What would it look like if that was true of us? What would it look like if people who wouldn't normally end up at your table ended up at your table? What would it look like in 2022 when the world is increasingly frustrated with the church? I was, I was reading this morning because uh, my kid woke up in the middle of the night, and so I, I try and put him down and I read Tim Keller articles. It's a weird thing, but me, Tim Keller, and Julius, we hang out in the mornings. He was talking about the decline of the church 
And one of the things that he mentioned was back when the mainline church started to decline in the 70s, the diagnosis was that they'd given up their role of serving the world, caring for the poor, and doing what only the church could distinctly do to being an agent of political parties and following political lines instead of stepping in and serving people the way that Jesus would serve. And the world sees us that way. Even just a few weeks after the Roe v. Wade overturning, and I'm not saying that's bad, it's it's the grace of the Lord, but some of the way that we as Christians have talked about that is we've been more serious about condemning other people for being wrong than standing alongside and being kind. What if people we had disagreed with about that decision got to sit at our table? What if people in our community who say, hey, the church is a bunch of bigots and they say they're for everybody, but if you're LGBTQTIA+, you can't sit at that table. What if those people sat at our table? What if the person from across the street who has continually maligned your faith and made you look like a fool, what if that person had a place at your table? What if you, who is an enemy of the state, And the son of the righteous king made place for you as an enemy of the state to sit at the table. What if you didn't just receive that? What if you reflected that to the world around you? What power would the church have? I actually think the the book of Luke is interesting to me because Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. And I think that Jesus is more interested in placemats at tables than programs in churches. And what if surely his goodness and mercy wasn't trapped to just a singular place because we can't be stuck in Eden? What if it's going out into the dark places of the world and saying, hey, come to my table, there's a spot for you here. What what if that was our our mentality of missions was not that we're gonna go to places and we're gonna convert people to pray and believe what we believe, but what if our mentality of missions was we're going like like the son of the king to go and make a place at a table for people who wouldn't normally have a place at our table? My favorite story that makes me think of this is the story of the Moravian boys. If you don't know the story, um, in the West Indies, um, there was a, the slave trade was taking slaves from West Africa, taking them across the Atlantic Ocean to the West Indies. And they were so adamant at making sure that ministers would not be uh, amongst those people to speak faith into them that if a, a pastor shipwrecked there, they had separate lodging for them to stay in so that way they wouldn't be anywhere near the slaves. So these two young men, stirred by the Spirit, sold themselves into slavery so they could be amongst people that they could give grace to. I mean, when you know that you know from the Lord, how awesome is that? But everybody else thinks you're crazy. And so their family members watching them get on a boat and go across to the West Indies had to be like, why are you doing this? And their response that's, that's recorded is that they would yell out, may the land that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What if when you sit at the table with that person that disagrees with you politically, theologically, culturally, ethic, ethically, ethics, whatever the word is, What if you sat there and while everybody else thinks you're crazy, you're saying, but the lamb that was slain deserves this reward? What if we approach what we've received from the gracious host by reflecting it to the world around us? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are a faithful shepherd.
willing to lay down your life, willing to lay down your all, that we would have a place in the kingdom. And so, Lord, would you invite us? Would you invite us not just to receive, but would you invite us to reflect? And because you go with us in every situation that we ever step into, because we walk in your incarnational presence, the conversation with the person that's antagonistic, you go before us. You, you lead us. You defend us. Where we go astray, you correct us. And then you provide goodness for us. With that confidence, would you allow us to do the same? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.